We are rolling once again. We are back on Exploring Faith, Pursuing Grace. I am Dr. Lee Grant, joined by my inimitable co-host, Brother Kevin Pendergrass. And today we have a special guest to discuss a really interesting concept, and that's the concept of Christian universalism. And joining us is Brother David Artman. He is a minister in the Christian Church, Disciples of Christ, and he is the author of the book, Grace Saves All, The Necessity of Christian Universalism. So, David, thank you so much for being on our show. Glad glad to get this chance to be with you guys. Awesome. This is going to be a really cool discussion. This has been a topic that we've had several of our of our listeners reach out to us about that they've wanted us to discuss this idea. And it's not something that I have a lot of experience with. It's not something I've looked at at all, hardly. Um, Kevin is a little bit more well-versed in it than I am, but we figured why not get an expert on there. And lo and behold, Kevin found you, and we've got a bona fide expert on this topic to uh, get with us and discuss it. Yeah, I'm, uh, you know, I, I'll just by way of by way of introduction. Um, I, I didn't grow up in church, and uh, church kind of scared me the times that I went. I grew up in Irving, Texas, and I'll just say that church was scary, and that God was kind of the whole God thing was pretty scary for me. But then later on, uh, I went to college at Texas Tech University, and I went through a time of spiritual seeking. And uh, I started reading uh, C.S. Lewis. You guys familiar with C.S. Lewis? Oh, yeah. C.S. Lewis is awesome. Yeah. Well, Mere Christianity. And I started reading the Chronicles of Narnia. And I sort of started to think that, well, maybe there was. What if I started to think, what if there was a truly good God that was at the center of everything? And, And what if that good God was really... It really was good. It was trying to do good things for all of us. And and I, um, like I said, I hadn't gone to church a lot, but I decided that I would, when I was in college, I decided I would get a New Testament, and I read the Gospels. And that really made an impression on me. That was like sort of meeting Jesus for the first time and his Sermon on the Mount and just all of his teachings about the kingdom of God and the fullness of life that he offered and about the way that he he accepted all of these people that nobody else thought had any value or worth. And that just kind of started a journey as a Christian church, Disciples of Christ, the, the first Christian church in Lubbock. What they said was, well, if, if you're wanting to believe in God and if you're wanting to follow Jesus as your Savior, then that's that's enough for us. I mean, you can come and you can get started here and you can bring your questions with you and and we'll read the Bible together and we'll discuss it, but you'll ultimately have to decide uh, how you're going to apply it to your life. We're not here to judge you, but we are here to encourage you and, and be with you and give you some Christian encouragement and fellowship. And so I, I just really thrived in that environment where I could ask questions and have conversations. I got to know the minister as a friend uh, who I could actually have conversations with. I didn't know that that was possible. And, yeah, uh, that's awesome. Yeah, and and then I he encouraged me to go to seminary, and I thought, well, that will, you know, that would be interesting, and maybe that's, maybe I could go and find out more about this and help other people. So I ended up going to a seminary at TCU at Bright Divinity School. I got a master's of divinity there, and then later, a doctor of ministry degree. When I got the doctor of ministry degree, I wrote a, a paper on preaching. It was a doctor of ministry in preaching. And it was um, it touched on these these different ways that people have had of thinking about hell in 
in the history of Christianity and how it related to preaching. And so there were three views that I looked at, the eternal conscious torment, the annihilation, and the uh, restoration or the universal salvation point of view. And at the time, I thought that the, that the, uh, the annihilation point of view you know, made the most sense. And I actually wrote a doctor of ministry paper and argued for the annihilation uh, position. And uh, then, then I kind of went out, I got into ministry, and uh, it was in 2011 and 2012, I was a minister here at First Christian, uh, here at First Christian Church in Harrison. I still live in Harrison, but I've retired. I retired from the church last year. Uh, but in 2011, 2012, I started uh, rethinking my theology. It was actually some folks in the church that had started to think that Christian universalism made the most sense, and, and we got into conversations about it. And then I started, I decided I would go back and do more reading about it. And I don't know, I was at maybe a different stage in my life. And I did, I looked at some of the more recent things that had come out about it. And I find, found myself sort of uh, gradually being more and more persuaded. And I think along, along that time too, I was teaching on a lot on, uh, on spiritual growth. You know, I would say that, that Christianity is growth and grace and and you got to practice them. You've got to practice them both. If you practice, if you practice growth without grace, you know, then that's that's tough, man. That's, that's so, under- so, David. David, let me ask you just so that, yeah. that everyone understands what you mean when you say Christian universalist. Can you give us just a quick summary of uh, or a definition of exactly what you mean when you say that you became a Christian universalist? So, so the idea is is that. I started thinking about grace, and I started realizing that my grace, my understanding of grace was becoming, it was it was a part of my theology, and then a big part of my theology, and then it just kind of became all of my theology. It just sort of took over everything, and that grace was everything. And I realized that I had been preaching, I'd been teaching people that salvation is by grace, and I'd been even been saying that salvation was by grace alone. I started saying that, but then I was also believing that God gave grace to everybody, and so when I started thinking, you know, what I'm what I'm really saying is that salvation is by grace alone. That somehow we're all that all of this and everything is is grace, and so that grace is universal, and that it's not just the way God is with us in order that we might be saved, but it's the way that God works with us to bring us to faith, to uh, to re- to repentance, to whatever that path is that we finally need in order to be able to wake up and to come home. So it's a, it's a universal, the idea of universalism is that, is that grace is, is, is uh, or that salvation will finally be universal to every human being. So whenever you're describing this, you're speaking of the process that you went through that led you down this road in your theology. Your theology evolved and shifted until mm-hmm. you you fully embrace this idea of, of Christian universalism. And by that, you mean that you weren't always a Christian universalist. No, that, that no. That wasn't always the position that you had. No, no. I, you know, I kind of started out with the, the idea that, that there, that, God must be really, really, truly good, and God must do every single thing that God can do to, and I even, you know, I was even believing that God didn't stop at death, that God pursued people, uh, that God was not limited, uh, God's love was not limited by time in the way that we think of it, but that somehow, even in eternity, that God could continue to 
pursue people, but they would continue to wall themselves off and that they would choose, they would, they would go away from God finally to the point. I didn't ever have it that God would, that God would annihilate them, but they would just, they would just so cut themselves off from everything that is life and goodness that they would gradually just sort of cease to exist. Well, so there's, I know growing up, I heard preachers and teachers talk about how the only people who believe in Christian universalism are those who don't care about the Bible. <laughs> and and it's yeah. it's this idea that people who, you, you can't really believe in the Bible and what the Bible says and hold to a a view that everyone is saved because as it was presented to me growing up and I used to preach sermons on this that you know the Bible's clear that not everyone's going to be saved. So what are some of the main reasons that that you would take issue with that that you would say well wait a minute I I do think you can be a Bible believing Christian. I do believe you can make your appeal to the word of God to show that that universalism is true. Uh, and so what would be some reasons why that, what, what really moved you toward that direction? Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's interesting that you say that because I've spent, I spent most of my Christian life in the, in the South among Bible-believing Christians. And, you know, they want to know, uh, what does the Bible say? I, was, I lived in, I was, did ministry in Chicago for, uh, for eight years. And, and up there it was, um, well, what do the church, what did, what is the, what did the ancient church councils say about it? It was, it was just interesting, just an interesting perspective change. But, okay, so when I talk to people in the, uh, around here, and, and sometimes I'll say, okay, well, yeah, it is, it is important. And, and there's a lot of people that will sort of have, that believe that, you know, there's just a plain, the plain reading of the Scripture. You don't need to interpret. You just need to believe what it says. You just need to, you just need to believe what it says. And I said, the Bible okay, says well, that that settles it mentality, right? <laughs> yeah. 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 You know, and, and I think that's a, I think that's kind of a simplistic way to look at things, but that's yeah. the level that I meet a lot of people at. And I say, okay, well, let's, let's just go with that. Let's go with that. And so, well, let me uh, share with you my favorite passage of scripture in, in, the, in the Bible, Lamentations 3, 31 to 33. And that was, you know, like, now what? What would you, Lamentations 3, 31 to 33. Have you ever heard of that one? And most of them, you know, Lamentation, wh- where is that? <laughs> I would say, well, okay. Okay, that's in, the old, that's in the Old Testament. It's right after the book of Jeremiah. And it doesn't really say who wrote it, but scholars think that it was probably Jeremiah, Prophet Jeremiah that wrote it. So let me just read these. Let me just, so I would say, let me just read these three uh, verses, Lamentations 3, 31 to 33, to you just, and this is, I'm reading from the New International Version here, which is a, a translation that most uh, evangelicals uh, recognize. And so I would just read this. For no one is cast off by the Lord forever. Though he brings grief, he will show compassion. So great is his unfailing love. For he does not willingly bring affliction or grief to anyone. And I would just, you know, read that to them and say, well, how does that, how does that strike you? And they would just get kind of, they were kind of, you know, kind of confused looking. Well, now where is that exactly? That, that, but well, that, but that's in the Old Testament. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, well, that, that's in the Bible, right? And that's the inspired word of God. And it, it says right here for no one is cast off by the Lord forever. And then they say, well, that's, well, that's not right because we know in other places it says that God does cast off 
people forever. Okay, so, so then they would say, well, you know what you need to do is you need to look at the context. Oh, okay, so now we're not just doing the plain, we're not doing the plain words now. We have to look at the context behind it to understand what the plain words mean. Is that what you're telling me? You know, and so that was kind of a fun way for me to get into it because then I sort of got them to admit, well, sometimes the thing that you read, the first time you read it may not be, once you look at the context, you may get a little different idea about it. Yeah, yeah. Context is everything. And I think a lot of the errors and foibles that people have engaged in and that have persisted throughout the years has been because a lot of context has either been ignored or overlooked to our own detriment. And context is extremely important. And that that plain reading of scripture, it, it's not a strategy that lends itself to good exegesis most of the time. I mean, if you're going to ignore context, you're going to end up in, in kind of a bad place. You're going to have a bad time with it. All right. So, you know, so, so I agree with that, but then, you know, but then I'd also say, but it is important that you do have some scriptures that you can show yes. that, you know, that you can make an, that you can kind of make an argument with. And, and, and I'll, I'll do that. I ultimately think that Jesus is the revelation of the character of God. And so yeah. you know, finally, I would say that Jesus is the ultimate hermeneutic. Jesus is the ultimate, and he is the lens through whom I see who God is. But here's some scriptures that when I, when I look at them, give me some real basic ideas. And, and what I thought I would do is try to put something together that was, that was simple, but uh, could sort of communicate uh, why I think I, I can find some scriptural support for this view. So I, 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 I do it in five points. And the first point is that God is a loving parent to all. Uh, and I look at 1 John 4, 8, which says, whoever does not Love does not know God because God is love. And then it, for a biblical definition of love, 1 Corinthians 13, I mean, we all know that, but if we think about that as not just a definition of, of love, but maybe a definition of God too, love is patient, love is kind, love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or, re or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Okay, and then uh, Matthew, uh, in, in the Sermon on the Mount, we, Jesus says, uh, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven, so that you may be bearing the likeness of your Father in heaven. And and so that that kind of goes with the idea that we don't just love our enemies because it's the right thing to do. We love our enemies because God, that's what God does. God is, a, is an enemy lover. And then there's this, uh, I, love the, uh, I love this speech that Paul gives in Acts 17 to all these, you know, these pagans in Athens. And so he's talking to all these, uh, he's talking to these pagan folks. And uh, this was important to me because when I was growing up, there was a diagram. I didn't go to church very much, but every, sometimes, you know, I, I got that diagram and it was, <laughs> Uh, you know, it was, I was on one side, and then there was a big cliff and an, a, you know, an abyss, and then God was over on the other side. And, and, and what they said was that sin separated you from God, that God was holy. So God was far away from you. And so, um, and then they did the cross, and then the, you know, and, and that's how you get over to God. Because God is, 
this really distant being. And it sort of made me feel like, okay, so I'm this human sinner, and God is this holy being who has to be very, very far away from me. And so it was it, when I came across this passage in 17th chapter of Acts, it really, really struck me. So this is Acts 17, 27 to 29, where Paul says, he's, he's, and he's speaking to pagans, and he's saying, God is not far from any one of us. And he's speaking to a group of pagans, for in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. And so that just really struck me. Therefore, since we are God's offspring and that we're living and moving and having our being in God together, and that Paul is saying this to a group of pagans. Just a couple more. Ephesians 3, 14 to 15 reads, For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. And then Ephesians 4, 6, God speaks of God as one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So I just, I just put all that together to say that, you know, I think when I look at all of this, I see a God who is love and who has a parental relationship with us that doesn't even, and this God doesn't even stop loving us in, even when we do enemy-like enemy-like things, and that we're all living and moving and having our being in this God, and this God is over us all and in us all and through us all. And we are, to me, that just, this really parental, I don't know if you, you know, when you're little and and your parents just grab you up and they hold you tight, just that kind of feeling. I I started to believe that that was the way that God was with me. David, what? Go ahead. Well, well, one of the things that uh, you and I had discussed earlier today when we were just talking on the phone that I, th- I thought was a really interesting point when I was reading your book is that when, when you talk about the points you just bring up, most people can relate to that on a somewhat personal level. Even if they didn't have a good family life or a good mother or father, they still can understand and relate to that because there's somebody who's loved them somewhere along their life. Yeah. And the, the, the pushback that I sometimes hear when the reasons you give uh, are, are discredited or sometimes even minimized, they go, well, yeah, that's true, David. But, you know, God is, is, is a God that we can't really understand, and God can do what he wants to, and God is God, and, and his good may not look like my good. And it's this distancing away from who God reveals himself to be in scripture. And uh, one of the points that I think is really, really strong in your book is that if, if God is, is all powerful and, and he's, if God is all knowing, sure, God can do whatever he wants to, right? I mean, a God like that, if, if God is just an all powerful God, sure. He could, he could live any way he wanted to. He could right. set any kind of standard for us and he could live a completely different standard than what he sets for us. But as you point out, the, the Bible tells us who God is, and the Bible tells us that the way he expects us to behave toward one another all is a part of his character. And so we can't say on the one hand, yeah, I understand what you're saying, David. Those are good points, but you know, God can do what he wants to because yeah. God can't do what he wants to without being 
uh, immoral to his character. So yeah. in other words, if, if God has told us who he is, if God has told us how he behaves and what he believes, and then we hold, for lack of better words, his feet to the fire and say, well, God, this is who you are, which, by the way, we see uh, at times Moses doing that. We see, hey, God, you're you're yeah. a loving God. You're you're a good God. This is who you are. And so if that's the case and we hold God's feet to the fire, then people can't just minimize what you just said by saying, well, God can do what he wants to, because he really can't do what he wants to and still be the God he reveals himself to be in the Bible. Am I, am I correct in saying that? Well, I mean, I hope so. um yeah and i think that god is you know that god is not a being that is out there deciding what to do god is to me god is love god is being where i am having my being inside i'm living and moving and having my being in in god so separation from god is not even something that that sort of makes sense to me and that so that god isn't deciding to be a certain way god is god is love God doesn't decide to be loving. God is love. And so when we experience love, that's just what, that's God. Anyway, all of that stuff really started, um, just really started coming home to me. I'm going to keep on, I'm going to, I want to move on through these five points so that we don't go for hours and hours. Okay. My second oh, we will point. anyway, but go <laughs> ahead. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay. So my, my second point is that that I I started to believe that God sincerely wants to save all of us. That that God looks at each human being as as an as an, a child, just like just like a good parent would look at a child as a as someone that I you know if they ever got in trouble I would I would go for them I would rest I would go whatever I needed to do for them, and so uh, just some different scriptures. Uh, Genesis 12, 3, spoken to God by Abraham, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And so that the whole story, really, starting with Abraham, isn't I'm going to call us people unto myself so I can bless them. I'm going to call a people unto myself so that through them, I can bless the whole world. Uh, I like uh, Ezekiel 33, 11, say to them, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. And so that God is God is all about life. And um, but here's one from Jesus, John 12, 32. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. You look in the Greek, that draws a really strong word, like if you're drawn in a net of fish. Uh, that same that same word is when the disciples are drawing in a net of fish. It's an it's a it's an intense kind of thing. And then Luke fifteen four to seven, which one of you having a hundred sheep and losing one of them does not leave the ninety nine in the wilderness and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders and rejoices. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, "Rejoice with me, for I found my found my sheep that was lost." And what I noticed there is that that the shepherd doesn't just go looking for the lost sheep. He goes looking for the lost sheep until what? Until he finds it. Until he finds it. He doesn't just he doesn't just well I looked and couldn't find it. So I'm going back to the 90 no. He looks until he finds. First Timothy two, three through four talks about God our Savior who desires everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Then 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, 
as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Okay, so I realize, you know, I'm making, I'm making an argument from Scripture here. Somebody could argue differently. As a matter of fact, uh, Calvinists uh, make the argument that it was never intent, God's intention to save everyone, that from the beginning of time, God decided he would only save, he, he was never intending to save everyone. There were some that, that would, never have, would never even have the possibility of salvation and that, and that they would just be, uh, uh, they, they were non-elect and that their destiny was to be just condemned. Uh, but other, most people that aren't Calvinists, you know, have that, have that belief that no, God, God really does. God wants the, God wants all people to be saved. And so that's my, so that's my second point. God sincerely wants to save all. Dave, let, let me interrupt you here. Cause, uh, if, if we need to, to have more time, we can always add that. Cause I, th- I think it's important, um, to really make sure that, 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 that really things are, are covered thoroughly and we, we don't want you to have to feel rushed. And I do want to ask you this before you move on, because this yeah. was a really good point. I feel like you made in the book uh, and you actually may be making this point a little bit later. If so, just, just tell me to shut up and keep going. But you, uh, you talked about yeah. the, the difference in the, uh, the Calvinistic view. And right. then uh, you talked about, you know, the Armenian view and, and you, you really looked at those two views and you, you looked at the strengths and the weaknesses and and then you said, this is why you think that this is a strong point in the Armenian view. This is the strong point in the Calvinist view. Here's why neither of them work individually. And and then you you call it the uh, the inclusive view, which of course is right. Christian universalism. C- can you summarize that for our audience? Because I doubt there are very many Calvinists uh, in in our audience. There may be, but I, I I thought you just did a phenomenal job in the book. And even the word Armenian to a lot of people probably doesn't make sense yeah. people don't really yeah. know so could you kind of break that down maybe just spend a few minutes you know two or three minutes just quickly explaining really those those three positions uh yeah. unless you're going to do that later because i just thought that was a really simple way to understand it when i was reading it yeah so when i looked at i started you know i've been thinking for all these years about grace and i started when i started really looking at it what i realized was that is the thing about that as a matter of fact, I had some, uh, we used to, our church, since we didn't have one doctrinal standard that everybody had to agree to, you know, we got this, a lot of different kinds of people, and we had we had some uh, folks with Calvinist, some Calvinist background people come to the church for a little bit, and so I studied more about that and, and their believing, and what they would say was that the thing that really attracted them about Calvinism was the idea that salvation was by grace alone, that when God extended grace to when God extended grace to a person that was God's effective saving presence with them that was God saying I'm going to be with you and I'm going to generate faith in you and I'm going to be with you on that journey it's not going to be easy uh, there's going to be ups and downs but I'm going I'm going to be with you and I will not let you fail because you are my you are my child who I have chosen and you're going to be so so there was this one idea that that grace um uh was uh actually saved. So they, and this was a real big thing in the Protestant Reformation. And uh, I know that in the Stone Campbell Churches of Christ, Christian, you know, it's not, we're not really Reformation people. We, we try to skip right back to the early church. But if you remember the Protestant Reformation, that they, they, was one of the things was that they said the sola gratia, by grace alone. That was one of the rallying cries of the, of the Protestant Reformation. So when I looked into Calvinism, they said, okay, they believe that 
salvation was by grace alone, but that it but that that God did not give this grace to all. Well, now on the other side of the fence, there were Protestants who said, and there was this guy named Jacob Arminius, who was who argued the position: No, God gives grace to God gives grace to everyone, and God actually does want everybody to be saved. But then, that what that grace does is it gets us to the point where we have enough that we can make that decision and we can come. It's not oh it it it. It allows us to make the decision. It's not; it doesn't overwhelm us, but it gives us it gives us the possibility that if we want to come, that then we can. So what what sort of happened is we ended up with sort of two camps. If you're in the Christian camp that says that salvation is by grace alone, well, in that camp, then that that God doesn't extend that grace to all people. Now, if you're in the camp that says that God extends grace to all people, then if you're in that camp, you can't really say that salvation is by grace alone. Um, so that's what, that's the way I kind of broke it down in the book. So I called uh, the, that salvation, if salvation is by grace alone, but it doesn't go to everyone, I call that the exclusive approach. It's exclusively for some, but not for others. And then the, the part where grace goes to all uh, but it does not accomplish all of salvation. I call that the transactional approach in that it's sort of sort of transactional. It's the idea that God gives us some of what we need, but then beyond that, God doesn't give us any more, and then we have to do this other part that is sort of beyond grace. And then what happens is different churches argue about what that part is. And some will say, <laughs> yeah, what's well, essential? <laughs> yeah, what, what do you have to add to grace so that you can know that you're going to be saved. And some people will say, well, all you got to do is believe. And then some will say, well, all you got to do is be baptized. Oh, you got to do believe, be baptized by immersion. Well, you do that. And that, that resonated. That, I was just going to interrupt you here for a moment and let you know that really resonated with me because w- with the way you put that when you're, when you're talking about the Calvinist, you know, if you ever meet a Calvinist, they know they're going to heaven because they're like, I, I know— it's by nothing I've done. It, it's yeah. God's grace. It, it, God, well, God's ex- grace has me. It, well, except there is this one thing that if you look at Calvinism, they've got the, the they have this doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, and so the idea is that uh, is that if you are one of the elect, you will persevere to the end. So how do you know that you're one of the elect? You persevere to the end. When do you know if you persevere to the end? <laughs> at the end. Yeah. And so. <laughs> That's a good point. We have, so we have some folks in the church that came from a Calvinist background, and they said that they could not, they went to church camp and they could not sing that song, It Is Well With My Soul, because it was too presumptuous. They mm. could only sing, Is It Well With My Soul? And, <laughs> and they could not, in, in their church, it was considered very bad form for anybody that was not an older person who had been in the faith for many, many years to say, to start to think that they were one of the elect. Well, and, th- uh, and that's that's the, the opposite problem, um, w- w- which you're dealing with right now, which is where so many people fall into, and that is, well, no, I'm saved by God's grace, but I've got to do something in order to obtain it. And the, un- the problem comes when people disagree on what it is to obtain it. And that's, that's why you have so many divisions, because someone says, well, you're not in God's grace because you didn't do what what I think you have to do to obtain it. No, no, you're not in God's grace because you're adding to what I think you have to do to, to obtain it. And you have all these debates. And even within each denomination and each church group, there are all these questions on, well, am I doing enough? And that leads to just constant questioning, constant right. doubting. And you don't even know if you're saved because, 
what if there's that one thing, and Lee and I have talked about this in, in episodes we've done on legalism, what if that one thing I'm supposed to be doing in order to obtain God's grace, I, I'm not doing? And even though I'm as sincere as I can be, if I've not done that one thing, I can't get God's grace. And since I don't know what I don't know, I really don't know if I'm saved or not. And yeah. so I, I thought you really did a, a great job, uh, whether whether someone is a universalist or not, the way that you presented that uh, is very challenging to, yeah. to to someone who is not a, a Christian universalist. And admittedly, I'm not, and Lee's not right now. That's We're having you on our show so you can discuss yeah. why you are. But well, I yeah, thought that that was a really, uh, just really strong point. I, I thought you did a great job exploring well, that. Well, thanks. Sometimes I'll, I'll talk to people and I'll say, about what do you believe? And I'll say, okay, let's, let's start, talk, let's talk about grace a little bit. And I'll ask him, uh, you have heard about grace and people always say they've heard about grace. And I said, have you ever, have you ever heard that we're saved by grace alone? And uh, they'll say, yeah, I've heard, I've heard that. Yeah. Saved, we're saved by grace alone. And I said, do, do you believe that? And they'll say, oh, well, I guess so. I mean, I think so. I've, I've heard that a lot, and uh, I've heard songs about that in church, Saved by Grace Alone, and I think I've heard some maybe some sermons. Anyway, yeah, I think I believe that. And I say, well, um, do you believe that God gives grace uh, to everybody? And and they'll say, um, well, yeah, yeah, God loves everyone. God, you know, God gives grace to uh, God gives grace to everyone. And then I'll say, well, do you believe that some will be lost forever? And they'll say, well, yeah, that Bible teaches that. Some will be lost forever. And I say, okay, okay, now it, it turns out that that Christians have throughout the throughout the ages have affirmed all these things. And there's some people that are Christian that kind of affirm all these things in their in in, in their minds anyway, but it turns out that you've got to give up one of those. If you if you believe that salvation by grace alone and that all people get grace, then you gotta give up that some will not be saved. Uh, so which one do you want to give up? And then they just kind of look at me and they say, well, I guess I need to give up that salvation is by grace alone. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it, it seems like that's the way that our minds tend to want to go because we're conditioned to that. It, it seems like in religious circles, we are conditioned to that point to emphasize the loss of those souls who are... Um, maybe recalcitrant, if I'm using that word appropriately, those that yeah. are rebellious, resistant. those who are resistant. That's a, that's an even better word. Um, we're conditioned to that. So it seems like that I know that would be my natural response. If I were engaging in that line of questioning with you, mm -hmm. that would be probably what my answer would be too. But yeah. so far you, you've said, you've mentioned Lamentations 3. You talked about how God is a loving parent to all, how God sincerely wants to save all. Yeah. And where do you go um, from that point? What, okay, what comes let, next? Let, me go to my, let me go to my third point. And this is that God in Christ covers the sin of all. And uh, here's some scriptures, uh, Romans 5.18. Therefore, just as one man's trespass led to condemnation for all, so one man's act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all. And if you look at that fifth chapter of, of Romans, Paul's really sort of making that argument that, that on the one hand, that, that you know, we're, all, we're all included in the disobedience of Adam and the consequences that come from that. But then also that now there's something greater and in that, in that, that we're included in that, and that brings righteousness 
and life. And then he, you know, he sums that up in Romans uh, 5.18, just as one man's trespass led to condemnation for all, so one man's act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all. And so sometimes when I was talking, when I was talking to people, I would say, um, okay, let me ask you, let me ask you a question. What do I have to do to make sure that I get in on being a sinner? What, Suppose I want to make sure the step the steps like, what of do I, uh, what the, steps do I, of, the steps of condemnation. Yeah, Mr. no. Let's say, let's say I don't want to miss out. I don't want to miss out on this. I really don't want to miss out on being a sinner. What do, is there a way that I can miss out on it? And their answer is always, "Oh no, you're you're born that. What you, there? You, don't worry, you're not going to miss out on that. That's universal." Oh, so it seems that all Christians are universalists when it comes to sin. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for okay. sure. So yeah, we're all Christian universalists when it comes to sin now. Uh, but Paul seems to be saying that there's something greater than that. We're universally covered in, in Adam. And that's what we're universally covered in, in Christ. If you, if, and so how do I get included in that? Do, oh, do I have to accept Adam to be my personal sinner? <laughs> and if I forget, awesome. and if I forget to do that, am I not included? <laughs> I'm not trying to. Oh, David, I'm, I'm sorry, man. That's that's awesome. I've never heard it put that way, but man, that's a really good point. That's a really interesting perspective. That if, I if, if I if I would have ever had to debate you in in my former life, that would have been a good zinger to use, man. I, <laughs> I, that is yeah. that is that is a really well, strong point. I like. Yeah. That. Well, and and you know, just remember, I'm not really debating you guys. What I'm trying to say is, what my my hope isn't that. Man, I want to win this argument because I love arguing. What I'm hoping to do is to make a place for somebody who's thinking I could never, I'm never, I could never be good enough to be included in Christ. I can be included in sin, but I could never be included in Him. And um, so let me continue on a little bit more about that. So, so, so yeah, so you're you're paralleling then the idea of of sin with salvation. That if there's universal sin by nature, the way that Paul is paralleling this. There also yeah. has to be uh, universal salvation. And would would Romans five twenty fit into that at all? Where sin abounded, grace grace did abound much more. Uh, well, actually, apparently it didn't, uh, because <laughs> it was universal. Uh, it was universal in condemnation, but if it's not universal in salvation, it it, it less it underabounded. Well, that's what I'm. Th- yeah, that's that's because I mean, this was not in our notes or anything, but that verse just came to my mind because in reality, we would have to say where uh, where grace abounded, unfortunately, sin ag- sin abounded much more. That that's yeah. really what you would have to flip that. Yeah, sin is much more universal and powerful than grace in most yeah. Christian theologies that I've that I've run across. Also, if you follow Paul's argument all the way to through Romans to Romans eleven thirty two, right before the doxology, there he talks about how uh, that God included us all in disobedience so that He could have mercy on all of us. So the whole thing about condemning us or it, it's about humbling us all. It's about all putting us in a position where none of us can say, "Well, I didn't need that. I never sinned." No, we all fall short. But the reason that God puts us in that situation is not to condemn us all, but to ultimately show mercy on all of us. So that's kind of how I look at Romans, the argument, the whole argument that Paul is making in Romans. Uh, this is something that's interesting. Second uh, Corinthians 5.14, for the love of Christ urges us on because we are convinced that one has died for all, therefore all have died. 
And so here's another thing where Christ is the one, he incorporates me in his death. Uh, I don't have to, he died for, he incorporated me there. He, he pulled me into that. Um, I didn't have to do anything to do that. I could say it's by grace that this happened, that I was incorporated in his death. Uh, Colossians 3.3 3 talks about, for you have died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And in other words, if Christ, what that kind of says to me is that if, if I'm incorporated in Christ in his death, that I'm also incorporated in God, that I've been pulled in. Uh, and so this is this inclusion theology. And there are a lot of people that sort of do inclusion theology. They don't get to Christian universalism, but what they'll say is everyone is included. It's not a matter of who, you know, if there's, everybody's included. The only question is whether everybody's inclusions will ultimately result in a restoration. Um, but so this is an idea of inclusion. First John 2, 2, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. So this is the Christian community saying he didn't just die for us. He didn't just atone for our sins. He atoned for the sins of the whole world. First uh, Timothy 2, 5 through 6, for there is one man, God, there's one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. So the way ransom works, you know, if I pay the ransom, if I pay your ransom, what are you? Redeemed. You're, you're free to go. You're free yeah. to go. Okay. And I think of that as the ransom that, that we're being held in hostage to, to sin, the power of sin and death, and that Jesus paid the ransom and freed us from those powers. Uh, but, you know, it'd be possible for the, uh, for the you're, you're freed, the doors open to your prison cell, and you're freed, but what might you do? You might stay, just stay there. You might this just stay crap. there. You might just stay there. You might not believe it. You might say, you're not going to make a sucker out of me. I know this isn't real. And so you could be forgiven but not have faith and therefore not to be able to experience it or to live in the freedom of that. Um, okay. Second Corinthians five nineteen says, God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. Okay. So I put all that together and I say that so that God in Christ has, has covered our sin. If Adam covered us in unrighteousness, Christ has covered us in righteousness. And it's so we're all underneath that covering of righteousness, whether we know it or not. And God's redemptive work is at work then under that cover, covering. And so then when we come to faith, what we begin to realize is, okay, oh, wow, look, look what I'm in, look what I've been included in, look what God is doing. And I can begin to live and believe and thrive in that. Okay. That's really, really interesting. And whenever you frame it that way, it does make a lot of sense. And it is a strong case. You know, so often whenever you hear something or an ideology or perspective that runs counter to everything that you've believed or the paradigm in which you currently find yourself, you tend to resist anything else. And you begin to try to proof text your way around it or through it or argue against it. And that's more or less a survival mechanism that, that we utilize to allow our perspectives to survive and to retain their importance in our own minds. But one of the things that I appreciate about all this so far is that you're giving good scriptural arguments for your position. Yeah, not, I wanted to, uh, uh, scripture is important. And, you know, I, I could talk about a lot about my story and my growing up and all that stuff. And But I really, I think probably most people that are listening to this says, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, tell me, t show me some scriptures. And if I can show you a scriptural a foundation from this, for this, you might not agree with me, but you're going to say, 
but at least the guy is reading the Bible. He's got scriptures. He's thinking about it. He's working his way through it. So good for him for that. So yeah. that, that's, that's the first thing I'm trying to accomplish here. Well, one question that I have, and this may lead up to, to another one of your points, because I know you said you had five have gone through three of them so far. Yeah. Um, one of my questions would be whenever we were discussing Calvinism and Arminianism earlier, yeah. one of the things that Calvinists lean heavily upon whenever they talk about, you know, irresistible grace, you know, all, all the petals on the tulip is God's right. sovereignty. Because right. God is sovereign, God will God's will will be done, and those elect will be saved. Whether you want to be saved or not, that's just how it's going to shake out. And I'm probably yeah. not doing that perspective justice. Well, it, but yeah, how it, does God's it, sovereignty play into this well, idea of Christian universalism? Yeah, that's my fourth. That's my fourth point. God is sovereign overall. In Calvinism, uh, you know, you, you could say you might not want to be saved, but if uh, if God decides you're going to be saved, in Calvinism. Everybody sort of starts out with this idea of total depravity. So people in you know classic Calvinism, people aren't just resistant; they are dead. Yeah, you're not resisting; you're dead. You're dead in your sins, and so uh, if you're dead in your sins, that doesn't mean you're as a human being. That doesn't total depravity doesn't mean you're just horrible all the time. But it means with with regard to attraction to God, with with regard to the things of God, you are dead to that. Okay, so it's not like you're being resistant. You don't even have the capacity for it. You're just yeah, dead. And if, and if and you're then, dead, there's no way to respond under that paradigm. Right. right. So, so the, the Calvinists would say. So, what happens is that God comes in and He awakens faith, that He brings life, and He He is the one. So He gets in Calvinist mind, He gets full credit. It's like a resurrection. He's bringing you to life. You don't get any credit for wanting. You were dead. And so he has he has he has made you alive in him, and he is bringing you to himself. Um, but uh, here's the way I handle sovereignty: is as I went through it, what I just said, the point that I try to argue is that God is sovereign over all. And this is a hard concept, for, especially I think for those of us in America, because we're about liberty and freedom and self determination. And I think also most evangelicalism it says, you know what? It's up to you. You're the one. You're the one in charge of your salvation. You're either going to be saved or you're not going to be saved, and it's up to you. God has done God's part, and now you need to decide if you're going to do your part. And then you say, "Well, what is my part?" And then that's when, well, you should probably believe and probably be baptized, and you should probably go to church and probably not do this, and you probably do that. And, you know, then it's, it sort of gradually becomes the system. Um, but anyway. What if we, instead of thinking about that, we are sort of the ones that are in charge if we thought that God was sovereign? And so here are just some scriptures. Second Chronicles 26, O Lord, God of our ancestors, are you not God in heaven? Do you not rule over all the kings of the nations? In your hands are power and might so that no one is able to withstand you. Psalm 115.3, uh, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Psalm 135.6, uh, whatever the Lord uh, pleases he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. Proverbs 19.21 is one that's quoted a lot. The human mind may devise many plans, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will be established. Uh, Job 42.2, uh, I know that you can do all things so that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Uh, Isaiah 14.24, the Lord Almighty has sworn, surely as I have planned, so it will be, and as I have purposed, so it will happen. And then we get to Isaiah 46.10, which has been a really important scripture for me. 
uh, talks about God declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my purpose shall stand and I will fulfill my intention. So the idea being that God knows the end from the beginning. God knows what God's intentions are and God will fulfill God's intentions. Uh, Jeremiah 32, 27, see, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? Uh, Matthew 19, 26, uh, but Jesus looked at them and said, for mortals, it is impossible, but for God, all things are possible. And that was with regard to the rich man and whether or not he could be saved. And then they said, well, how can any of us be saved if he can't be saved? Or, or if it's going to be really hard for him to be saved, then how do we have a chance to be saved? And that's where Jesus says, for mortals, it is impossible, but for God, all things are possible. Ephesians 1.11 uh, having talks about having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. So I think I could I could make a biblical argument that God is sovereign, that God knows what God wants to do, that God is able to fulfill uh, God's intentions, and that no no power is able to thwart God. No 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 human being, no nobody, no human power is or any power is able to thwart God. And God, since God knows the end. Uh, from the beginning, uh, whatever happens at the end is what God uh, was intending from the very beginning. Okay, so that's just uh, God is sovereign over all. Well, and whenever you mention what Jesus said about the rich man and that entire exchange between Jesus and his followers, I had never considered that passage in view of God's sovereignty. That's never been something that has really come to mind until you really brought that out. And that really does make a good point. With mortals, it is impossible. With God, all things are possible. That's that's a really interesting take on that. I really well, I started like I, I started saying to people that I don't think that salvation is so much something that I achieve with God. That I don't think that salvation is so much that something that humans achieve with God is so much as it is something that God achieves with humans. That's, that like salvation that. is salvation is the work of God from well, start to finish. And that, you know, then now I'm sounding like a Calvinist. Yeah, <laughs> it's like it's kind of you know, and from how I from from sort of where I started, that's like finding a hair in my mouth. Like, ooh, <laughs> I'm well, sounding like a Calvinist. But then, the, what I found out was that there were certain things that I agreed with in Calvinism, and then there were certain things that I agreed with on the Arminian or the the other side. You know, and so it, what's what's odd about all of this is that I'm not believing anything that hasn't been strongly advocated and and believed. It's just well, I'm. They haven't been all put. They've been separated from each other. Go ahead. The, the the comprehensive approach that you seem to be taking to this is just it's very interesting, and I believe you're making a very strong case. the The way that 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 you were taught probably to look at scripture, at least initially, in the way that that I was taught and Lee was taught, and probably most people, is you just go to your go to the Bible and you find a few Bible verses that that uh, quote-unquote affirm what you already believe. And every anyone can do that. Anyone can stockpile their favorite Bible verses, but the, yeah. we have to take a, a what you even call in, the, in your book a narrative arc and a comprehensive yeah. approach to this topic. And when you, when you look at these points that you're, you're really building, this foundation that you're building, you know, nobody's, well, I wouldn't say nobody's going to deny, but, but most everybody is going to say, yes, God is, is sovereign. Uh, we may disagree on what sovereignty means from one Christian to another, but everyone would say, right. yes, God is all powerful. And, 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 and most everybody is going to, to admit that. And then when you start looking at the idea 
of God sincerely wants all to be saved. God is a loving parent and, and the, the redemptive plan of Jesus Christ and how that parallels the sin that came through Adam and the universal sin versus the universal salvation. It, it really makes a very interesting comprehensive case because that has always bothered me to say that it is God's will for all to be saved and that God loves everyone and that God is all powerful and God is all knowing yet only a, a few people are going to go to heaven. And yeah, that really I listened to your, I listened to your podcast episode about will only a few be saved. Yeah. And that, that <laughs> yeah. does end up, that does end up starting to bother people, uh, starting to bother people over time. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, you know, I, I, I came to a different conclusion on what few meant even within that context, but even then you're still faced with a reality that an all knowing, all powerful, all willful God who loves everyone and wants everyone to be saved, who claims that where sin abounded, grace abounded that much more, and yet ultimately sin wins. Right, yeah. That's weird. Sin, yeah. sin wins for the majority. That and because I, I might I would probably get pushback for that comment. So I want to clarify. People would say, well, no, no, sin doesn't win, you know. God God wins. Okay, that that we could still say that, that God wins, but not for the majority. God God only wins for for just a a, a few folks who are uh, either lucky enough to be selected arbitrarily by God or who figured out and decoded the Bible to know exactly what they had to do to make sure that they uh, checked that box off so that God would give them all the grace they needed to go to heaven. Yeah, so the sovereignty, yeah, so the so, it's interesting. Sovereignty questions can really kind of revolutionize somebody's uh, theology because if you sort of grasp the idea of sovereignty, then you say, okay, whatever happens is ultimately going to be what God wanted to happen from the beginning. And then the only question is, what did God want to happen from the beginning? Then, then, the, then the reverse is also true. If you get to the, if God is sovereign, and then at the end, whatever happens at the end is the revelation of what God intended from the beginning. So if at the end, all are not saved, then that means that from the beginning, God never intended to save all, and God got exactly what God is going to get exactly what God wants out of creation. And so then the question just becomes, what is it that God wants? And this leads to my fifth point, which, uh, which is that God will be all in all. And so I think I can see some indication that what God ultimately wants is to be all in all, just like a parent might have a bunch of children and, and they go off on different journeys and they have problems, but they imagine that one day, that they're all going to come back and they're all, they're all going to be like, you know, like when it was like when they were little that, but it's going to be an informed kind of relationship and that there's going to be this love and this understanding. Okay. So anyway, let, can I go to my fifth point? Yeah. 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 Go ahead, take go it away. Ahead. All right. So first Corinthians 15, 28, when all things are subjected to him, then the son himself will also be subjected to the one who puts all things in subjection under him so that God may be all in all. Romans eleven thirty two, and we talked about this a little bit earlier, but I think it comes up here too. It says, for God has imprisoned all in disobedience that he may be merciful to all. So that's, God wants to be merciful to all because God wants to be all in all. Ephesians 1, 9 through 10, he has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure that he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to gather up all things in him, things in heaven, and things on the earth. Uh, Isaiah uh, 45, 23, by myself I have sworn, my mouth has uttered in all integrity a word that will not be revoked. Before me every knee will bow, 
by me every tongue will swear. Uh, Romans 14, 11, uh, for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall give praise to God. Philippians 2, 9 through 11, therefore God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And if you look at that word uh, for confess there, it's exomologestai, and that's a verb that has to do with uh, glad, uh, glad and open confession and joyful proclamation. Colossians 1, 16 through 20, for in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers. All things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. First uh, John 3, 8, the Son of God was revealed for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. And so if the work of the devil is to separate us from God, then the work of the Son of God is to, is to include us and to unite us with God. Acts 3.21 talks about heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything uh, as he promised long ago. And, and so that is a, an idea of the of restoration. Sometimes people will talk about this as universal salvation or the restoration of all things. Um, yeah, I think we can, I think we can stop right there. The idea there is that I think that I can see evidence in the scripture that God's intention is not just to be all in some or some in all, but to be all in all. And that's the final, that's the final in, intention of God. And, and I would just argue if it is the final intention of God, then, then I believe that God being sovereign uh, would be able to uh, accomplish that purpose. Well, one of the things that I appreciate so much about everything that you just went through in those five points, and to our listeners, if you're interested in this in this topic, in this idea, pick up Brother David's book, um, pick it up, check it out. The, we'll have a link to it in our show notes. It, there's much more detail in that book, as I imagine. I have ordered that book, and I'll be reading it myself. I know Kevin has has gone through it, and he has good things to say about it as well. So we'd encourage you to do that if you want more information on this idea. But and, one of the things I appreciate... Oh, sorry, Kevin, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. I was going to say, one of the things that I appreciate so much, David, is the fact that you make a scriptural case for it. You know, you're going to the scriptures, you have plenty of of scripture to to cite to to bring people along on the journey in yeah. developing and presenting this this idea. Yeah, some people I was telling somebody I was going to be talking to some Church of Christ guys about it. And I don't you know, Church of Christ people, you know, you know, they're intense. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and they no, said and they said, I said, are you know, are you are you kind of, you know, scared? Church of Christ people would be kind of scary. And I said, well, <laughs> these guys, these guys don't seem scary to me. To me, these guys, these guys seem really interested in grace. And they're really, but the thing about Church of Christ people is that they, I think they can respect people that, that are bringing a scriptural argument. So I'm not really, I, I'm going to be bringing a scriptural argument. We're going to be doing scriptures back and, and forth and talking about them in I think if I'm bringing a scriptural argument that, you know, that they're going to respect that. Well, and I think it's, it's really respectful. And 
One of the things, though, that that I can appreciate is is that in positions I've had before, because earlier in the podcast you had mentioned you weren't always a Christian universalist, right? And for me, I I don't know if you've listened to those episodes or not, because we we did several of them. It's it's a few hours total in 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 length for every part of that podcast we did, uh-huh. but I changed one of my positions on on the age of the earth and how Genesis is read. Just just as an example. And prior to that, I had plenty of scripture to back up my belief. And even though my perspective is shifted, I still have plenty of scripture to back up my belief. But what led to that paradigm shift for me is that there were problems that my previous position couldn't really answer. There were questions that came up that just that couldn't be answered under that previous paradigm. Mm-hmm. And it seems like if someone takes such a shift, even if it's slowly and over time from a position of, um, for lack of a better term, a limited atonement where only those, you know, there's a select few who will be saved if you take the Calvinist view right. or only those who are obedient will be saved. It seems like that it's a pretty big jump to jump from that to a position that's more universalist that believes that God's grace will ultimately in the end save everybody. Mm-hmm. So. My question would be in the time that we have left, and we're probably going to end up running a little bit over, but that's okay. It's our show. We can do whatever we want. Um, It seems like my question would be this. I'm wondering what problems presented themselves that your previous perspective couldn't really answer? And how did that? That is, yeah, yeah. In a way, I'm arguing with myself here because I used to. I used to have, as a matter of fact, and I got, uh, when I started to think, um, okay, I'm going to, I think I'm starting to feel this whole Christian universalism thing. It made me a little nervous <laughs> because, yeah. you know, that's sort of a line that you cross. And if you say God is love and God is, there's going to be wideness in God's mercy. Amen. God is, heaven's going to, heaven is going to be overflow. There's going to be so many people in heaven. You're not going to be able to count them all. Amen. God's going to save everyone. Whoa, hold up. <laughs> oh, oh, whoa, now, wait a second. You kind of got a little, <laughs> you got yeah. a little, yeah. And, uh, and so I knew that, you know, that, that, that raises lots of like, you know, you're a preacher. You should know that the Bible talks about heaven and hell and some are going to heaven and some are going to hell. And, and it, you don't know that kind of bothers me a little bit about you. And don't you know the Bible? And so I knew, and what about Hitler? And, uh, and you know, and if, and if that's the case, then why are we doing all this Christian stuff? If everybody's going to go to heaven, you know, then what's the, uh, why are we being Christian? You know, it was just raised like all these questions. And I knew that once I did that, but the problem, but the thing was, is I was kind of on this grace journey and I was teaching people and I was encouraging people to grow spiritually, but I did not want to be that person that loaded them up with all these unbearable burdens. So I was having to say, yes, we are to we are to grow, but we are growing in grace. This is not supposed to be a burden. Okay. This is called fullness of life. This is a gift. This is this is this is like the the pearl of great price. This is the treasure in the field that you figured out. You know, this is the kingdom of God right now. And so that it was all grace, that it was all that it was all mercy. So 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 I started, that was one of the things I I finally I finally, uh, old David, previous David, (laughs) you know, finally, I think that, that the grace needs to be, the grace needs to be uh, everything. And there was also, 
uh, some problems that I, I, I was starting to feel that I was having problems with uh, defending the goodness of God. Because like say an atheist or uh, could say, you know what? I don't think your God is, is good because if your God is all-knowing and all all knowing and all powerful, but he creates he creates a creation in which these people come into it, and he knows full well going in that he's either you know he's not going to elect them for salvation or he knows that they're going to fail whatever his test is he knows that they're going to fail it and then he creates a hell and he torments them there forever so he's creating people that he knows he's going to torment forever and then when they fail which he knows they're going to fail then he pitches them in hell forever and how can that be good yeah yeah and that's one of the things that i appreciate about this perspective is that it takes that goodness of god very very seriously and right and it's I a serious it, let, let me say this it's a serious issue now because there are a lot of people a lot of young people that are leaving the christian faith and why are they leaving well i've got a gay friend i've got a hindu friend i've got a jewish friend i've got a, a atheist friend and you're telling me that the god that is love is going to torment these people forever yeah and yeah. and 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 that god and and that if they and that god is all-knowing and all-powerful so apparently god knew about all this god set this world up and put these people in situations in which he knew that they weren't going to be saved and now they're going to be tormented forever and then and then they know but they know if i ask that question they're certainly well, going to kick me out of the church one, so i might one, as well just leave well, <laughs> It's something in, in going along the lines of, of what you're talking about right now that you said in the book, there was a story, and I don't exactly remember um, the source for the story, but it was about a, a woman who killed her children because she wanted to ensure that they were going to go to uh, heaven before they reached the age of accountability. That and, was another problem for me. Well, and, and, and they were teaching pastor's classes, and when do, what do I tell the kids? I would tell them, you know what, we're not, you're not getting baptized because we need to make sure, like, if you don't get baptized and you're, you're over 13, that you're going to go to hell forever. What, what we're doing here is this is your chance that you, you, you now understand God and God's love and Jesus, and you want to follow him, and you understand fullness of life, and this is your chance to really make your lifelong commitment to that. But God, God has always loved you and will always love you. You've always been in God's heart. That doesn't change. Your baptism doesn't change that. You've always been in God's heart. I mean, that's the way I found myself saying these things to these children, right? Yeah. Um, go ahead. So that was another thing that kind of got to me. Well, is, I, yeah, I was having this conversation with a friend on uh, the topic of abortion and just the the inconsistency that usually people argue on on all all different sides of this uh, this this issue, um, not necessarily the issue itself, but how the issue is handled. And and you know, on the one hand, you have a group of people who think that uh, the majority of babies born are going to grow up to be heathens, and they're going to end up going to hell forever and ever and ever and ever. And right. and, and so and then on the that same individual thinks that, you know, the, the individual who would have an abortion, well, they're, they're going to go to hell forever and ever and ever. So, uh, you know, unless they repent. So with, with that whole ideology, yeah, would, would it not actually be the right thing to allow these, these, and I'm speaking for, you know, I'm, I'm speaking tongue in cheek here, but would it not be better to allow these so-called heathens to just go ahead and, and and mercy kill all these children so they can go to heaven and not have to be raised by these quote unquote uh, sinful wicked individuals. Uh, would well, that not a, that well, not be a, the best thing to do? 
Well, there's a book called uh, Spiritual Terrorism by a guy named Boyd Purcell. And he grew up, he grew up in a very, you know, very highly ratcheted, very legalistic, eternal torment kind of church. And he got, he, he took this really seriously. Like some people sort of hear this stuff and they're like, oh yeah, okay. Who, hey, what are we doing after church? You know, and some people <laughs> hear this stuff and they're like, oh my God, you know, <laughs> and they, you know, it just like, they can't sleep it. They start having panic attacks and uh, he was kind of like that. He's super sincere. And then and he even, um, he just, when he didn't want to have children because he could not be sure that God would love his children and that he couldn't stand it, that he could bring, possibly bring a being into existence, which would be in this being, his, this child that he brought into this world would be tormented forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And he couldn't take that chance. So he couldn't have children. And, you know, it's really interesting that you say that. And it, that story that you just told, it that gives me some chills. Because whenever my wife and I were first discussing when we wanted to start having kids and how many we wanted to have and things like that, which we have four now, and it's that four and no more. We're not having any more. Our youngest is a terror. He's just, he's a little monster. Well, you, but you, were, you were fruitful and multiplied. We were definitely fruitful and multiplied, but... But it's funny that you that you mentioned that that he tells this story because that's kind of how my wife felt. She said, "This world as bad as it is, how do I know that it's just not going to snatch our kids out of our hands and out of God's hands? And right. you know, they'll choose not to follow Him." And she's like, "I just don't know that I could bear the thought. I don't know if I could bear the thought." And I'm like, "Well, baby, ultimately that's that's going to be their choice, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera." But you know, he had that fear. My wife had that fear, and it makes me wonder yeah. how many more Christians have that fear in their own minds whenever it comes to having kids. That's let, me, really let, let me tell you, let me tell you a reverse story of a, of a kid in our church and his father was really, his father actually had come to first Christian church because we were having a discussion about all of this. And, and he's, he, he confided in me that he was a Christian universalist. And I said, well, you can come to first Christian church and be a Christian universalist because we, um, you know, at first Christian, you believe in God, you accept Jesus as your as your Lord, your Savior, you follow him to the best of your understanding as you read the Bible to the best of your understanding. And you can certainly make at that time. It was funny because I wasn't convinced of it, but I knew that you could make a scriptural argument for it. And I knew it was that there were early church fathers that believed it. And then it was a widespread belief in the early centuries of Christianity. So I said, you know, that would just, yeah, come on, you can be that's you know, come on, you can be, you can be that way. And then it was actually the conversations that we started having. And then I gradually started really moving towards his position and, 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 and sort of came to it on my own. But what was funny is his son uh, was in college and his son had, had sort of adopted all of this, uh, that, that he's being saved by grace alone and, and all this kind of thing. And, and his son is just most wonderful, you know, wonderful, just, just wonderful person and uh, he was the head of his fraternity and the uh, president of his fraternity. And there was a local evangelical campus ministry that the head of it wanted to make an appointment with him. And so he, he agreed to meet with them and they, they sat down for lunch and he sat across from him and he said, well, I just got one question for you. If you were to die tonight, what chance would there be that you would be in heaven with God? And the kid just looked at him and said, a hundred percent. 
And this other that. guy was shocked. <laughs> and he said, he just kind of sat back, you know, because he was waiting for, well, I don't know. I mean, I try to be a good Christian, but sometimes I don't go to church and I read my Bible. I don't read my Bible as much as I should, you know, and I, you know, and so I'm hoping, you know, I'm, you know, he was, he was waiting for that answer. And he just looked at him and said, a hundred percent. And he said, what makes you think that you've got a hundred percent chance of being with God in heaven? And he said, because I'm being saved by grace. Yeah. That that's that's that is something that you're not going to hear by by most from me. <laughs> yeah, and he it's said gonna... that the guy he said that the guy was stunned. <laughs> looked at him, looked at him, and he said, "I don't think I've ever heard anybody say that before." But I guess that's maybe the best answer I've ever heard to that question. Well, and isn't it sad that more Christians aren't confident enough in the grace of God to be able to answer that question in that affirmative? I mean, I just had a conversation the other night with a really good friend of mine, and they kept saying that, you know, there are times, you know, they, they've learned to appreciate God's grace more, and they've learned to lean on that grace more, and they've learned that it's not really up to their perfect precision obedience to a set of rules that, you know, are real or imagined that come from scripture, but you know, that they're saved by grace through faith and that it is the gift of God. And yet they're, they're like, you know, and I still struggle with some of that outmoded thinking. I still struggle with that idea of being good enough. Am I really doing enough? Am I really doing this or doing that? Yeah. And that seems to be the perspective that so many Christians have. Yeah. And it's because in so many circles, God's grace is de-emphasized, either the links that it goes to or the power that it has to save, period. Yeah. And whenever that happens, we end up enthralled in this spiral in which we lose our certainty because our certainty is predicated on our action. It's predicated on our intellectual capacity to grasp truth from God's word, to be able to put that to work in our own lives in a perfect, precise manner. And it makes the onus of salvation fall upon our own shoulders yeah. rather than recognizing the power of God to save and just how far reaching his grace is. So you're, when I was you're working, getting fired yeah. up. I'm starting to preach now. <laughs> when I was working through all it when I was working through all this myself, and it's awkward to be undergoing spiritual change and transformation when you're in ministry. Yeah. And that yeah. is that is really <laughs> that is really <laughs> awkward. An awkward so place. Anyway, yeah. So I remember one night, you know, I was just kind of laying there in bed and I was sitting there thinking about all this. And, I, you know, I was saying to God, you know, God, I'm, I'm doing good now. I'm in, I'm in ministry, but you know what? Nothing is really, not, nothing really terrible has ever happened in my life. What, what if something happened to my, to Amy? What if, what if something, you know, what if some, I mean, there are real tragedies that, that that happen to people. You know, what if something happened and I just broke? And I mean, I just I just lost it. And maybe, you know, and I'd been working with some recovery people and thinking, what if I went down the path that some of these folks have gone down? And I, you know, and I just lost it all. And I started to hate myself and started to believe that you didn't love me anymore. <laughs> I convinced myself that you didn't love me anymore. And I just went and crawled off in a hole. Then what, God? You know, yeah. and it's kind of like when you're praying and it's like, huh, I wasn't really expecting it to go there. I wasn't expecting to say, and then what God, but, and you know, this wasn't, this wasn't audible and it was, maybe it was what I wanted to hear, but it wasn't anything I'd ever said to myself before, but sort of what I heard was, David, this isn't about you having me. This is about me having you. Yeah. 
then that that is that is a powerful time in anybody's life, uh, even if they haven't come to the exact same conclusions yeah. where you have. Because I, I remember that same feeling and just recognition that this whole time, the reason why I have felt this sense of insecurity is because I have been trusting in myself to get all yeah. this right. And when you realize that that's what Jesus came to do, which is supposed to be the gospel to begin with, and right. when you realize that that is the good news, then it's just like so much weight is lifted off of you. But there that are... Was, and that was kind of my, and that was kind of my, you know, if there's a little, if there's a point where you sort of tipped over, you know, yeah. like I was, it was, it was all of this thing and I was building towards all of this. That was kind of the tipping point. And then from then on, I just kept, I kept walking in this way of, you know, you, you know, you said you went through that, that time when uh, you changed your viewpoint and you started walking in more grace. And for a while, you're starting to wonder, it's like, well, is, is the sky going to fall? Is something bad going to happen to you? Yeah, 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 yeah. You, well, you become yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. You, yeah, almost okay. superstitious. <laughs> right, right. Okay, so imagine this. Imagine this. You're in ministry, and you tip over, and you start believing that grace is everything. Grace is going to save. You know, it's like you have this aha moment. It's like, oh, my gosh, grace is everything. It's, it, it's, it's everywhere. And all of a sudden, it's like all you can see is grace, and it's like, oh, you know. <laughs> And then, but then, you know, it's like, uh oh, what now what, you know? And so I guess well, maybe one of the things I want to say is that, is that I've been, you know, living in this, my, my Christian faith this way uh, for a number of years now. And I've met a whole bunch of other people online and in conferences that are just so excited about their, about their faith. And they're so excited about, they're so excited about God. And so one of the things I guess I can say is, you know, there, there are people that, that are thinking, you know, they're going to give up on Christianity. I don't, I don't believe in Christianity. I don't believe in the God of whatever, but I think that this is that this can be a really transformational spirituality for people. I've seen people say like in, in our church, I'm, I'm able, sometimes I tell people about, well, this is an option and they find out about it. And I had one guy say to me, I grew up, my dad's, my dad was a preacher and I never wanted to see a Bible again. I never wanted to go into a church again. But this thing that you're talking about, I didn't know. I didn't know that this was even a possibility. And I love this stuff. Well, with, yeah. with he was in, he's in church. He's he's happy. His his he and his wife, you know, started coming to church. They're bringing their kids to church, and not because and and I would say to them now, you know what? I know this church thing. You only come to church when you want to, when you, when it, when it's, it's, it's because it's out of joy. It's, it's because it's out of good feelings. Don't come here out of guilt. Yeah. And they were, and they were just coming and just having a blast. <laughs> you mean people who actually want to get together with other Christians? That's the way, that's the way it should be. <laughs> it well, shouldn't be. So with, yeah. with anything, we, we want to go ahead and wrap this episode up because right. of, of time and, and get into the second one here. There's, I know there's some more information that, uh, that, that we're going to be covering in that we didn't get to here, but we'll make sure to get that covered in the next episode. And also yeah. like, like most people, if, if, like myself and and probably a lot of people out there, they're listening to this and they're asking all of the, but what about this exactly. passage and what about that passage? Yeah. Because I, I know that there are a lot of, <laughs> a lot of questions. And, and I, in fact, I emailed you today with uh, right. a 
lot of questions. I said, all right. I said, here's, here's all my questions. Sounds good. Sounds good. But what about all these other passages? And so if you're right. thinking that, if you're listening, if you're our audience right now and you're thinking, you know, this sounds good, but what about all these other passages? Um, that's what we're going to get around to in the next episode to allow David to expound a little bit on some of the specific questions that uh, would be some pushback to what David said so that he can give his explanation on that. So Lee, uh, go ahead and close us out. Let, let, is there anything that you want to, you want to point out before we end here? Well, no, I just, David, I really appreciate you taking time out of your schedule to come on with Kevin and I to have this discussion. I really appreciate your expertise. I'm really looking forward to getting your book and reading it because it's one of the, one of the things that growth requires is the willingness to engage with other ideas and other paradigms. And that's something that Kevin and I never want to shy away from. We really want to test all things and hold fast to that, which is good. And one of the things I I think in closing that I appreciate the most about this perspective is that it makes the, the good news really, really good news. I Mm -hmm. think that's a really strong note in favor of it, but there are some questions that I have. There are some questions that Kevin have, or that Kevin has, and we'll get into those in the next, in the next yeah. episode. You know, and there is no, and, and I'll do my best to answer some of these questions, but there's going to be some scripture verses I'm probably not going to be able to handle very well. And that, and, and you know that, what I found out, but the, the, <laughs> I found out that this was sort of a problem, no matter, it was like good grief. You know, I got into seminary and it's like, let me just find a place where I can stand where I don't have a scripture problem. Like, <laughs> man. Good luck. Hey, yeah, let's, let's, Whenever you find a bulletproof <laughs> argument, uh, then you need to abandon it. And that's what I tell people. If you think your arguments are, because let me tell you something. When I was, when I was, uh, you know, 25, 26 years old, I had bulletproof arguments, but for whatever yeah. reason, here I stand 10 years later and there's holes all through them. So, right. so I'm not bulletproof, I'm not bulletproof, but I, I, I have some perspectives that, that at least I've kind of worked through. I'm happy yeah, to share those. Exactly. And that's what we appreciate so much. We really appreciate you coming on for sharing your perspectives with us for kind of walking us through the the foundational elements of Christian universalism. I know it's something that we can't really fully get into even in an hour and 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. It's but but thank you so much for sharing what you did share and we really look forward to the Q&A session which we'll have in our next episode. And awesome. as, as we close out, we always want to say to our listeners, we appreciate all of you um, we're, we're growing. Our audience is growing every day. And we're so thankful for you guys sharing our podcast with your friends, with your neighbors, with your loved ones, share it with your enemies too, because if you're going to love your enemies, then you need to give them this because maybe then you won't be enemies and you'll find a friend. Uh, give us that five-star review on iTunes. Uh, follow us on Facebook. If you have any questions, shoot us an email, holler at Kevin, holler at me. We'd love to hear from you. We love hearing from you guys and engaging with you all. Thank you all very much. And we'll see you again soon.